morning. So thankful to be here. I'm so thankful to get to open the word with you, to get to preach. I expect faithfully the word of God for us to listen to, to hear, to learn, to apply and follow. I'm thankful that um, I will say that and I'll probably say this again a few times because it makes me anxious. The text today and next week, parts of today's text and next week's text are two of the hardest uh, texts to understand, maybe in all of the Bible. So um, that's cool. That's cool for me, for you, uh, for us today. Uh, but I will say that even the, the text that we can't exactly understand fully or can't explain fully, These texts are still beautiful, they're still wonderful, they're fruitful, they're profitable for us. Uh, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Uh, And I think you're going to find some profit out of this. Although, uh, at the end of today's sermon, it's going to take a weird turn that you might not have ever heard before. So, uh, get ready for that. And and you might have, so who knows. Uh, Over the last few months, we've been discussing uh, living our faith uh, out loud as we interact in some of the most difficult situations. We've learned many wonderful truths and helps that lead us to respond to a holy God in a holy way that honors him during difficult times. Over the last two weeks, we discussed the seven commitments to living a life of blessing in a world of evil. I gave you those seven commitments. I'm going to repeat them quickly today. Uh, but So if you didn't have them, uh, you're not going to have time to write them down, but you can uh, ask me for them and I'll give them to you. But I'm going to be a blessing when I'm not blessed. I'm going to speak good and true words. I'm going to act in a holy way during all circumstances. I'm going to trust the Lord to hear my prayers. I'm going to think and live in a hopeful way. I'm going to be prepared to defend the hope that I have. And I'm going to disarm all of my enemies. All of these commitments along with a host of understanding, understandings uh, from the Bible will help us live a life of blessing in a world of evil. Now, I don't want to make an eighth commitment because uh, I want you to see today as a new section. But if we were going to make an eighth commitment of being a blessing in a world of evil, it would be, I am going to suffer well and victoriously because that is what Christ did. Uh, If I were going to make an eighth commitment, which I'm not. So let's take that thought and make it the theme of our our message for this week and, and really next week too. I'm going to suffer well and victoriously because that is what Christ did. His commitment sums up what Uh, We've previously discussed and moves us into our next thoughts. Sorry. (coughs) Ah, Thank you. It's unnecessary, but thank you. Just kidding. Today we have thought, or today we start this new section. His commitments sum up what we've previously discussed. He he moves us into this new section. We find the message of verses 18 through 22. Uh, is the victorious suffering Christ and the blessing that comes out of suffering well. So I've titled our sermon today, The Suffering of the Victorious Christ. Let's read, um, let's read 1 Peter 3, 
18 through 22. We will focus today on 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm going to leave you on the hook for this, verse 21, uh, but I promise you that I'm going to give you a Baptistic understanding, a Baptist understanding, a biblical understanding of this next week. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having being been subjected to him. Pray with me this morning before we really begin. God, we love you. Lord, we praise you for all that you have done for us. We have the ability to love you because you first loved us. Uh, we praise you because you're victorious. Uh, you stand at the right hand of the Father and uh, you and the Father and the Spirit reign both now and forever. You reign supreme over this world, Lord. I pray that you reign supreme in our lives. I pray that this word today uh, takes hold in our hearts. It changes us. It makes us more and more into the image of your Son. Lord, that we are continually and uh, regularly being transformed to live more like Jesus. One of those ways that we do is to understand that even in difficult times, even in the most terrible times, even in suffering, the ultimate suffering, that we are Christ, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and Christ is God, so we have victory over all things. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you today, and we ask that you bless this time in your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Today we only look at verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, verses 19 through 22, I really believe, are some of the hardest verses to understand in all the Bible. They're not difficult in the sense that it's going to cause you to question your faith, but they're difficult in the sense that it's going to cause you to question what the heck is going on. Um, so while I have come to a conclusion uh, for me on this text, and I think it's the best conclusion, so I think you should come to the same conclusion that I've come to, uh, I think that there are at least two ways of looking at uh, verses 19 specifically, since that's where we are today. Uh, verses 18 is pretty straightforward, and we'll, we'll focus on that too. But I think there are two ways of looking at uh, verses, uh, verse 19. So towards the end of the sermon today, uh, you'll need to buckle up a little bit and get ready. First uh, Peter is a book that is focused on the suffering of God's people. Because the audience was obviously and would until the return of Christ, they would suffer for their faith. But also there is a connection in 1 Peter that couples our suffering with the suffering of Christ. This is not just an unrelated, isolated suffering of God's people. But it is a suffering like, similarly, and almost uh, exclusively paralleled to the way Christ suffered. 1 Peter 
1 discusses our suffering, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 also do the same. Our section today is more related to how Christ suffered, uh, which relates to 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, where Peter discusses the suffering of Christ. Uh, if you want to turn back a page, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He, bore, he himself bore our sins in, a body, in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You must understand this, friends, that the prevailing thought about suffering, as one commentator puts it like this, is that Peter is telling us today that our willingness to suffer for Christ is grounded in his willingness to suffer for us. That the prevailing thought on the amounts and the limits to our suffering. The willingness for believers to continue to go on suffering is grounded in the fact that Christ was willing, more than willing, to suffer for us. I believe that Peter is giving us these parameters for suffering, and then he is saying, listen, your primary motivation for suffering should be grounded and founded in the fact that your God, your King, your Lord was willing to do the same for you. We suffer because he suffered. Not only because we are imitators of Christ, right? That's one thing. We suffer because we want to be like Christ, because we want to imitate Christ. But we also suffer because the same tactics that were used to try to destroy our Lord will be used to try to destroy you. The enemy is not original. He's not new. I can promise you that the, the best he had to destroy God was at the cross of Christ. That was the best he had. And yet he failed. But don't believe that just because he failed with God that he's going to try to give up that same tactic on you. Uh, the, enemy is, the enemy is full of vindictiveness. He is full of power, but he's not always smart. So sometimes stupidity leads you to do the same things over and over again, even if you know that ultimately they will fail. But he will use the same tactics. We will suffer because we are imitators of Christ, but we will suffer because the same tactics that were used against our God and King will be used against us. The world around this world of evil around us, the enemies that are at your door, the conflict in your mind about yourself, about others, uh, the conflict in your relationships, these are not new tactics. These are not new things that only you are experiencing, that no one else understands. Your depression, your anxiety, your anger, your, the issues that you have in your life, the trauma of your past, these are not new tactics of the enemy. <clears throat> these sufferings, the doubt that you have about yourself, the doubt that you have about your salvation, the doubt you have about God, these are not new tactics. The enemy has always used a little truth 
and a lot of lie to try to cause as many people to fall away from the Lord as possible. But these things are just sort of the first layer of trial and suffering. If he cannot bring you down in your thought life, if he cannot bring, if you persevere past that, if you persevere past your thought life, if you persevere past your relationship issues and struggles, if you persevere past your doubts, if he cannot bring you down with doubt about your salvation or your doubt about God, he will move into the heavier guns. And the heavier guns are isolation from friends, the demonization of the faith, the upheaval of truth that makes right look wrong and wrong look right. Ultimately to even possibly bringing your suffering to the ultimate sacrifice and that's death. Ben said something interesting yesterday that I carried with me today. He said, how cunning is it of the enemy? How tactful and brilliant not only to make right look wrong, but to make the oppressor look like the oppressed. The tactics of the enemy are so strong and really stronger than we have the capacity to personally face. And the more you reject the tactics of the enemy and the more you accept the truth of the gospel, the more desperate and vile the attacks will be on you. On some level, if you're not facing deeper and deeper conflict with people uh, for reasons that are holy and just because of the gospel, if you're not facing trial on some level, it is likely because the growth of your faith has stalled or your faith is not present or for Christians, the growth of your faith has stalled. You know what bulletin board material is? Have you ever heard the term before? Bulletin board material is when a team... A sports team, when they're about to face another team, says something that the coach of that team can put on the bulletin board to motivate his team. And here's the, underst here's the understanding I have about the way the enemy works. Satan will not give you bulletin board material because he understands that you're a sleeping giant. He understands that all it takes is a little bit of motivation. So the time that Satan most prevalently works in us, the time that the forces of evil most prevalently work against us is when we are actively working against him. If we're a sleeping giant, we are sleeping. If we are a sleeping giant, we are not present in the fight. And so the enemy works most strongly against us when we are actively working against him. But until that point, he will let sleeping Giants lie. So he doesn't give us bulletin board material. He doesn't need another adversary. We will suffer as Christ suffered. But what Peter tells us today is that we also experience great victory. Why? Because even in the, perform, the most ultimate form of suffering, Christ was and is victorious. Over time... Over time and even beyond time, we experience this measure of Christ. We experience Christ in every way possible. So let's look at the victorious Christ. And that's the first thing, uh, that's based on the first thing I want you to see. And that's from verse 18, the first part of our verse 18, and that is the victorious suffering. The victorious suffering. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us 
to God. It sounds like a conflict of terms to say the victorious suffering, but one thing we have learned or need to learn about Christ is that there was never a possibility for victory without suffering. I'll say this again for those of you in the back. There was never a possibility of victory without suffering. Suffering was always the necessary means to the end that gave God victory over the enemy and gave us victory in Christ. Specifically, without the suffering of God's Son, there is no salvation. And when you know the plan of God, when you know the part of the plan of God, that part of the plan of God is to suffer, and when you know the end results of that suffering, uh, one can eventually bring you to the point of salvation and brings to final victory, then you understand that, victoria, that suffering is and can be and is in the situation of Jesus victorious. The victorious suffering of who? Christ Jesus. Peter says, for Christ also suffered. There are two words there that we need uh, to look at, examine, and those are connecting phrases. Peter says, for and also. For connected the present thought with the last thought, the thoughts from uh, verses basically 8 through 17. For connects uh, the, net, the thought that we're on right now with the last thought. Peter says, for Christ also suffered. For and also. Like you suffer, Christ also suffered. Like you are reviled, Christ also was reviled. It, for and also connects us to what Christ has experienced. This goes back to our seven commitments. So while we are making the seven commitments, while we are trying to keep those seven commitments, we must remind us this as we're doing that, and this will give us strength. He blessed when he was not blessed also. He spoke good and true words when they were not spoken about him also. He acted in a holy way in the most dire of circumstances also. He trusted the Father to hear his fervent prayers also, we are hopeful, and this is a caveat that's different for him. We are hopeful, but he was sure in his suffering. He defended the hope he had also while not trying to remove himself from it. And he disarmed his enemies and brought countless to faith by living a holy life also for and also. The end of 1 Peter 3 confirms what is said in the middle of 1 Peter 3, for he suffered also, for he lived in these godly ways that he is requesting us to live. So if we wrote those seven commitments down, or if we're trying to remember them and live by them, one of the greatest motivations that we have to living a life of blessing in a world of evil is to know that the also is there, that Christ has also done these things and better than we could ever do them he has given us an example to follow in suffering you might say Bryce Christ's suffering for his cause is admirable but it's not victorious and and you would be right if that's all that was there Christ's suffering for a cause is not victorious it's admirable it's honorable it's it's good even but it's not victorious but that's not how Peter leaves it 
He didn't just say, for Christ also suffered like you did or like you do. His next words uh, is where we find the victory. What does Peter go on to say? For Christ also suffered once for sin. Once for sin. His sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice is final. Because of this, because of this suffering once for sin, it is not to be repeated in history or by symbol. This is why as Christians you must reject the Catholic Mass. Because in the Catholic Mass, they repeat, it is, it is a, a, a historical symbol of the repetition of the suffering of Christ. So in the Catholic Mass, in the Catholic mindset, Christ suffers over and over and over again. Every Mass. But in Christ, what we know is that he suffered once and for all. The work of the Christ was done, the work of the cross was done and completed in the time of Christ in the first century of this world in real existence. He suffered once and for all, not to be repeated in history or symbol. He suffered, the NIV says he died, but we know it brings us to the same result. He suffered, he died once for sin. This would have been so foreign to the Jewish readers because they would have sacrificed up to a quarter of a million lambs each Passover. Each Passover, up to a quarter of a million lambs. And they would have repeated this for a few thousand years. And now Jesus comes and says, the lamb has come once and for all as a once and for all sacrifice. The better sacrifice, the better priest, the better sanctuary, the better blood, the ultimate and final sacrifice. He died for sin. He suffered justly in the sense that what he died for was not his own sins. Not only did he die for our sins, but he died because of sinful people who put him on that cross. It was just in that manner. It was unjust in the way that the people killed him because he did not die for anything he did. Just suffering in Christ, just as suffering uh, in Christ is just if we die for the sins of others, our own suffering is just if we do the same. And I'm going to try not to confuse this for you. When we live a holy life we will, and we suffer, we are suffering for something someone else does. And that is just suffering. If someone expresses anger to us, that's their sin and not ours. If we're living holy lives. If someone expresses hatred to us, that's their sin and not ours if we're living holy lives. And we most model Christ when we withhold our right to be angry, our right to revile, our right to uh, speak negative words, our right to speak untruthful words. We, must model, we most model Christ when we live holy lives and suffer from, for someone else's sin, just as he did. We most represent Christ when we are suffering for him and not because of us. Romans 8 says that God has done what the law and the sacrifices and the ordinance couldn't do by sending his son in the likeness of flesh, loading, uh, loading up the sin of the world on him and bearing that sin on the cross. 
in such he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirements of God might be fulfilled. He made him who knew no sin not sinful. He made him who knew no sin sin. Not sinful, but he made him who knew no sin to bear the sin of man. Imagine the weight lifted then from the Jewish people who knew the lack of efficacy of the sacrifices, right? You would, you would have to be stupid, you would have to be ignorant to not understand the lack of efficacy of the sacrifice, the effective nature of the sacrifices. Why? What would be your first clue that the sacrifices didn't work? You had to keep doing them. You had to keep doing them. If they worked, if they were God's final plan for the salvation of man, then you could do them once and it would be over. The fact that something didn't, the fact that these sacrifices didn't work would have been prevalent under, on the minds of these Jewish people. Imagine the weight lifted for those early Jewish Christians. Imagine the weight lifted to know that the uncertainty of the act at Passover, the uncertainty of the act of the removal of sin in their rites and ordinances and sacrifices, the uncertainty was gone in the cross of Christ. Isn't that great for them? Imagine the weight lifted of the anxious, of the depressed, of the abused, of the addict, of the desperate, to find out that the way to remove sin from your life is to remove yourself as the sacrifice. Remove yourself out of the salvation process. Imagine the weight lifted from people who try over and over again to sacrifice something in their life in order to find favor with God. Imagine the weight lifted from them to hear the words that Christ died once and for all for you. Not based on what you could have done, not based on who you could be, not based on the sin that you could eliminate out of your life, not based on the way that you can clean yourself up, but the way that Christ died and the efficacy of his death, burial, and resurrection. Imagine the weight lifted when we find out that the gospel is about taking ourselves out of the equation all together and trusting in the Christ who for the sake of God, the glory of God, and for the sake of sinners died once and for all. And to trust that God and to stop trusting in ourselves. The gospel is lost to people who don't think they need the gospel. The gospel is lost to people who think that somehow they share a role in the making right of their life. But to people who know their own desperation and then find out that God has answered the burden of their desperation once and for all, the gospel is 
everything. He suffered like us. But it was for sin and it was once and for all. What a great victory. What a great victory. That's not just, that's not it though, folks. There's more victory to be found. And that is, he stood in our place. Peter goes on to say, the righteous for the unrighteous. Not only did Christ conquer sin once and for all, but where I could not do that for myself, he stood in my place. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless took the place of the sinner. The just for the unjust. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him sin who knew no sin that we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Is there a more victorious message for the believer and the unbeliever than you aren't good enough? You will never be clean enough. You will never be ready enough. It was always the plan of God to make a way for you that supersedes your power, that supersedes your ability, that pulls you out of the equation altogether. Friends, this part of verse 18 tells us two things that cannot be missed, and I want you to see them today. They're not on the board, but I want to see how important you think they are by writing them down without seeing them on the board. Salvation comes not when you fix yourself or God fixes you in the equation, but salvation comes when God replaces you from the equation all together. We are not integral. We are not important in our salvation story. The only part of the salvation story that is important about us is that we keep messing it up. You aren't necessary. You are, you are only a necessary part, your only necessary part of salvation, of your salvation story, is to accept Christ as your substitute, the, un, the just for the unjust, and move out of the way. This is one of the most hopeful messages from this passage and from all of the Bible. Because anyone who has tried to live for God on their own long enough knows that they can't. Knows that the, le- the quarter of a million lambs that you sacrifice every year are not enough to f- earn and find the favor of God. They're not enough to permanently cleanse you from your sins. But the just stepped in for the unjust once and for all. Salvation comes not when you fix yourself or God fixes you in the equation, but salvation comes when God replaces you from the equation altogether. There's a second very important truth, and it's a, it seems a little separate, but it goes back to our thoughts on suffering. Incomprehensible triumph can come during incomprehensible suffering. Incomprehensible triumph can come during incomprehensible suffering. Is there more than you can give for the Father than your life? Is there more than you can give for the faith than to die for it? Jesus did this, and the greatest triumph in all of history took place. Jesus, who suffers with us, also is the ultimate lighthouse for triumph at the end of suffering. 
in the middle of rejection, friends, in the middle of confusion, in the middle of chaos as it surrounds you, the cross is the lighthouse for victory in all of that suffering. And for the faithful believer, typically the greatest triumph, the greatest triumphs in our life come from our greatest suffering. He stood in our place because nothing we could do could matter enough to save us. What a victorious thought that he died once for sin. What a victorious thought that he stood in our place. But here's another. Here's another, friends. He ushered us to the Father. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ tore the veil of the Holy of Holies. He not only opened up the way to God, but he ushers us to God, both now and when we die. There is no other intermediary between God and man but Christ. Man can find God for sure. That's one of, greatest, that's one of man's greatest worries. It's one of greatest man's one of, excuse me, one of man's greatest struggles is to find God. But there is only one way that this happens. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The way, the truth, and the life. The wording here for brought us to God is a formal wording where a person introduces or gives us access. It's like a lower a person in the king's court giving access to the king, introducing a person to the king. It's like a mother might introduce her newborn baby to people. You know, I, I thought about this as I was, I thought about our life as I was thinking about this, and I thought, um, especially early on, uh, how protective we are, we were of our newborn children. Uh, and Anna, I didn't, I didn't, I never made a decision about who saw our children by myself. We always made that collectively, and usually it was on Anna's prompting. Anna was the gatekeeper to introducing our children to other people. And this is, this is what this is saying of Jesus. It means that not only did he make a way to God, but he said, you can see him now. You're ushered in to him. You can meet with him. It'd be one thing if Jesus made a way, that's cool, but not only that, he showed us the way. He carried us to that path and he gives us communion with the Father. Man can find God because that's one of his greatest searches, but the only way is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door between God and man. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He victoriously and proudly ushers us to his Father. And he says, look what we did. Look what we did. These are the ones that you said I would die for. These are the ones that you would redeem. I know that the trauma of your past, I know that the trauma of your present, your present troubles seems to complicate things, but can I tell you that the Lord makes it so easy for you and me? He died for sin once and for all. He stood in your place and he brings us to the Father. 
Could it be more simple? He died for your sin once and for all. He stood in your place, and he brings us to the Father. What part of that call, What part of that elicits effort on your end? Other than trusting him. Other than allowing yourself to be vulnerable. To know your need and receive him. There's a second part. And I'm going to go through it quickly. I'll probably spend some time on it next week a little bit too. You're going to need to spend some time on, uh, on it in MC. Because it's going to get weird for a second, okay? And that's the victorious sermon. The victorious sermon is found in 18b through 19. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now this is going to seem disconnected from what we have been talking about, but it's not. Because after Jesus died, after he died once for sin, after he uh, stood in our place... Um, and in the process of ushering us to the Father, after he died, he went on a victory sermon tour. So that's, that's how it's connected. Uh, and there are many thoughts about this section of Scripture and even the one next week. Uh, and I'm going to address uh, the one I believe and the possibility of one other, but the rest are not even a possibility. So it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's what I believe. There was a time between the death of the body of Jesus and the resurrection of the body of Jesus where Jesus was alive and active in spirit form. Okay? So the time, there's, this is a lot. It, I mean, it, this, that's just the icing on the, that's just the tip of the iceberg, I guess. There was a time between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, likely, this is the time period, uh, definitely after the death and before his ascension. It's either after his death and before his ascension, or it's after his death and before his resurrection. Those are the two times where God's body was dead, Jesus' body was dead, but his spirit was alive. That's pretty simple. Here's where it gets a little complicated. These verses seem to imply that there was a time where the spirit was separated from God. So in a sense, the spirit of Jesus was dead. Because to be made alive, one must first be not living, right? So Peter says he was made alive. And I think that that was, uh, I think this is the time on the cross from where Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the time where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There was a time where the spirit of Jesus at least in a metaphorical sense, was dead because God rejected him. God turned his face from him. So at least in a metaphorical sense. Now, because Jesus is God, he never ceased to exist. So figure that one out. So I believe from the time that Jesus said, my God, my God, the impersonal, my God, my God, to the personal, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, is a time where, at least from the stance of God rejecting his son, uh, even if it's just metaphorically, the soul or the spirit of Jesus was dead. And then Peter says, uh, he was, his spirit was 
raised. His spirit was raised again. Uh, and then he went, and what did he do? He proclaimed <coughs> or he preached to the captives in chains, to those who are in prison. And you probably thought what I said a minute ago was the weird part, but that's not even, we're not even getting there yet. There are about five different views on what this means, and I think only two can be a possibility. This isn't purgatory, okay? Some people believe that this is purgatory. The Catholic view on purgatory is heresy and should be abandoned. There is no purgatory. There is no holding pattern for people. There is no place, another view, there is no place where uh, people can be redeemed after they die. The Bible says it is appointed for man once to die and then judgment. There is no second chance offering, which some people believe that was, that's what this text is saying. Another view that is less wrong, but I think still wrong, is that he went and preached to the people of hell and basically said, I won. All you people, all you people in the days of Noah that rejected me, that that thought that you were smart, that thought you were victorious, I won. Here it is. I, while I think that's possible, I think it's improbable and, and likely not the truth of what's being said here. I think Peter is saying one of two things. That Jesus preached in the Spirit in the days of Noah, through Noah, while Noah was building an ark, as referenced in the next verses. Or that Jesus, in the time that he died to the time that he rose, in the Spirit, went and preached to fallen angels who had been bound in chains. And which, that's the view that I hold. And um, I've got some more research on this and more thoughts on this that I can't, I'm not smart enough to fully explain to you in this setting or context, but I'd be willing to try in another one. But he preached victory over these fallen angels and all of their forces. I believe this is the one that Christ in spirit preached his triumphant victory to the demons, the fallen angels who had been bound since the time of Noah. Now, who are these angels? And here's where it gets crazy. I believe uh, these angels are angels that we see in Genesis 6 and the book of Enoch, which is an extra biblical text. Uh, Genesis 6 tells us that fallen angels procreated with the, the daughters of men. I believe that these bound angels are angels who had sex with earthly women. Okay? I told you it was going to get weird. Uh, there are only two views you can have of Genesis 6. The first is that it was people from the godly line of Seth who stepped out of their godly line, their godly calling, and had sex with and procreated with um, this, these ungodly females, or that it was these fallen angels who were enticed by these beautiful women of the earth, and these women abandoned their uh, position to go after angels, and these angels abandoned their position to go after women, earthly women. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. This is not unusual. This thought is not unusual. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels, the messengers of the Lord, went into Sodom to tell Lot, hey, bro, you need to get out of here. And what happened? The homosexual men of Sodom 
surrounded the door and said, bring your guest out here. Lot said, you can take my daughters. They said, no, bring your guest out here. It was a reverse order, but it was still a similar thought. The people of Sodom tried to have sex or rape or whatever. The angels, and in Genesis 6, it's just reversed. So this is not a foreign thought. What I believe is that these fallen angels, because they're still angels who, not all angels are bound, these fallen angels crossed even the parameters set for fallen angels. Like even, even though fallen angels roam, even though the devil roams, there are still bounds. There are still boundaries that they must follow. And that these fallen angels crossed even that line by trying to procreate with women and therefore create an irredeemable line of people. And ultimately that's what happened. Genesis 6 says that their offspring were the Nephilim. Do you know what a name for Nephilim is? Giants. That their offspring were the giants, the men of renown in that time. So these, either godly line of Seth or these fallen angels, they procreate with these women of the earth, and their procreation is the most renowned men of the time, also known in other contexts as giants. So, what, so I believe what happened in Genesis 6, I think Jude references this, is that these fallen angels, they procreated with women of earth, they created these demon spawns, and even that was crossing the lines for demonic forces. And so God bound them. And I believe that, and this is as crazy as all of that is, and we can talk about it. I mean, listen, I, I can promise you, I'm not willing to like hang my hat on that. I'm not willing to like, all right, it's either me be the pastor of Vintage Church and you follow this, or what. I'm not willing to do that, okay? I feel pretty strongly about it, but if this is the first time you've heard that, this is probably super weird to you, but it's okay. But here's the, here's the important message. And it's the reason it was brought up. The, Satan and the rest of the demons roam the earth. You know what's, why that's significant? Because they witnessed the cross. They knew what had happened. They knew that it was over. They had put the full force the full attack of the enemy on the God of the universe, and yet he still has remained victorious. They knew what had happened. They knew what had happened. But here's the story. The demons that were in prison, they're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. They didn't know what happened. The demons that were in prison were like, bro, what's happening? What's happening out there? So Jesus gives a victory sermon. He says, hey, just, just in case you missed it, I've won. It's over. It's over. You might have thought that this last card that was being played by the enemy, you might have thought that this card where the enemy was going to crush the Son of God was going to be the final blow, that it was going to be the key to your release, and you would finally have victory over God. But guess what? Your brothers, they already realized this. It's over. I win. 
So while I can't verify to you with absolute certainty that Genesis 6 and Jude is talking about angels procreating with women and creating the Nephilim and then being bound, and then this is the people that Jesus is talking to. Well, I can't say that with 100% certainty. Here's what I can say. Whoever, whomever God is speaking to, he is proclaiming to them a message that they might not have gotten up until that point, and that is that God has won, that victory has been secured. Friends, I want to tell you, if the greatest force of evil was unleashed on our God and Savior, and victory is still so certain and so won. There is no evil that you could face today that, number one, God has not already faced, but number two, cannot be overcome and conquered. There is no sin. There is no temptation. There is no thought or emotional feelings about yourself or about others that cannot be overcome, that cannot be conquered. God has won. Would you do this for me, friends? Would you, to those demons in your head that bind you, would you tell them that God has won? Would you let them know that God has won? To those enemies that you face every day, those people who persecute you, if you don't do it verbally, at least do it in your own head, would you let them know that God has won? There is no power. There is no power. There is no victory for you. For Christ died once and for all in our place to bring us to God. Friends, I want to tell you, that is the gospel. If you are having difficulty formulating the gospel to someone else, it is this, Christ died in your place once and for all to bring you to God. And that victory is as certain as we are sitting here today in this room. More certain than we are sitting here today in this room. That victory is worth trusting. That victory is worth proclaiming. That victory is worth putting up against every problem, every struggle. Mental, emotional, physical, personal. um, Even if it's secondary problems that our family faces. That victory is worth putting up against every single one of those problems. And saying, it's over. We've won. You can give up now or you can give up later. But it won't matter because I am victorious through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. We know that you have our good in your hands, that not only do you have our good as it pertains to salvation, but you have our good as it pertains to our daily lives. You want us to live in victory. Victory is certain. Victory is over. Victory is won. Victory is sure. And it's all because of what you have done through Christ Jesus. And so we proclaim to the demons, we proclaim to the, the forces of this present darkness, we proclaim to any person or anything in our mind that might get in our way, Christ has won. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We praise you.
For you have found, you are found to be over and over again the only one worthy of praise. And we say these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.